This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Allison Prash, who is the author of The World is Our Stage, The Global Rhetorical Presidency and the Cold War. This was published in 2023 by the University of Chicago Press, and it's a really interesting book about the presidency, rhetoric, understanding what presidents are doing when they're talking abroad, um, presidential bodies. Uh, but I'm going to let Allison tell us all about that. I'd like to welcome Allison to the New Books in Political Science podcast and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this project. Hi, Allison. Hi, Lily. Thank you so much for the invitation to join you. Um, it's a real honor to be here. I, um, I'm an, or excuse me, I'm an associate professor. I just got tenure. So I'm associate professor. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Thank you. In the department of communication arts at the university of Wisconsin, Madison and how I came to this particular project, um, as many of us may be able to do, um, it was started by an interest in graduate school where I knew I wanted to study the presidency and presidential rhetoric. And I was particularly fascinated by instances in which U.S. presidents would be speaking in particular locations, whether that was in the United States or overseas, and would draw on their location uh, to to support or give evidence for their argument. And so as I started studying various iterations of this, I started to notice some patterns specifically as it related to Cold War foreign policy discourse. And so I I started thinking about this relationship between presidential rhetoric and place in my graduate work um, and that those interests evolved and morphed and changed and really um, kind of led the way to this particular project. And this book really goes through the the key Cold War presidents um, and particular speeches or, you know, sort of um, oration that transpired in a particular place. You talk about Truman in Potsdam and Reagan in Normandy. Um, and so I want to ask you to tell our listeners a little bit about what is important in terms of the discourse and communication and political science about presidential rhetoric, because it's not always completely straightforward and not everybody's on the same page. Um, and also why being in a place is important. Mm, that's a great question. So I'll start by saying that my training is in communication studies with an emphasis on presidential rhetoric. And so I consider myself um, both a, a theorist of presidential rhetoric and also a historian. And so the methods that I employ are really seeking to understand where and how presidents use language and symbolic action to connect with the public. Um, and so from my perspective, as we think about the study of presidential rhetoric, um, I think here often about the work that Mary Stuckey has done in, in thinking about that the president becomes an interpreter in chief of who we are, or Vanessa Beasley will write about that the president speaks to us and for us and about us. And so, um, you know, we could have debates over 
who does that or does that well, or um, has that been violated at particular moments. But generally speaking, um, the idea is that when a president speaks, the public listens and they are communicating something to us about national identity. And so um, in my study of specifically at various moments in the Cold War and foreign policy, what I was interested in looking at is how presidents would adopt that particular role in articulating U.S. foreign policy during the Cold War. And so you generally see the Cold War is is a a phenomenon, and we see it actually um, discussed in various texts of popular culture. But um, we should think about the Cold War as this, not just a historical period, but it's really this ideological framework that presidents and other political officials will utilize to describe a very particular um, struggle between democracy and communism or the United States and the Soviet Union. And that took on various flavors and forms between 1945 and 1991. Um, But I was looking at moments in which presidents would travel to a specific place that they saw as significant, that embodied and symbolized what the United States was committed to during the Cold War. And so you asked about the significance of place in relationship to the presidency. And so here I draw a lot on work of um, sociologists and anthropologists and people in in memory studies, but essentially this idea that places can also speak rhetorically. Carol Blair did a lot of pioneering work in this area in rhetorical studies, but that a place, whether it be a, a monument, the Lincoln Memorial, for example, or as I talk about in the book, a, a site such as West Berlin and what that meant during the Cold War, those places can symbolize larger ideological commitments. And so what I'm doing in the book is seeking to connect the historical archive with the presidential speeches or, or utterances, what we see of that presidential address in a place and how that all coalesces to present a particular narrative of the world and what that president saw um, the United States as doing in that world. And this is what I found so interesting and important about your book is uh, political scientists often talk in the abstract about, you know, presidential rhetoric. Um, and it, is it valuable? Does it have an impact on the voters kind of thing? You know, we have Biden going off to um, Michigan and Trump going off to Michigan this past week um, with regard to unions and workers. Um, and so you have you have this this um, notion in political science that there's, you know, sort of conflicting conclusions about how effective a presidential rhetoric is. But you're talking also not just about presidential rhetoric and certainly not presidential rhetoric per se in the United States, but presidential rhetoric abroad, um, which is a different um, potential audience, although overlapping audiences. And I think that's one of the important points that you bring up is like, who is the audience for presidential rhetoric when we're in the Cold War, when presidents go to these particular places, is it just Americans back home or the Soviets or are there broader audiences at play? Ah, uh, yes. The question of audience and effects. Yes. Um, no, it's a great question. And I think, um, as you know, you know, we have different cons- Different scholars have different concerns when we think about presidential rhetoric. And so I was actually trying in this book to address 
a number of different concerns raised by political scientists and also rhetoricians. So um, I'll get to the question of audience first and then maybe, you know, step back a little bit and think about effect. Um, as I was tracing these various iterations or these various examples, so just for your listeners, the, the ones I look specifically about are um, Harry Truman at speaking and traveling to the Potsdam Conference in 1945. I look at Dwight D. Eisenhower's Goodwill Tours in 1959 and 1960. As I mentioned, I look at uh, Kennedy's trip to West Berlin in 1963. I look at Nixon's opening to China in 71 and 72, and then Reagan's um, speeches commemorating Normandy or the, the 40th anniversary of the Normandy invasion, and that is in 1984. And in all of those cases, um, one of the things that I did to really make my argument is I spent a significant amount of time in all five presidential libraries and also the National Archives. And at the National Archives, I was looking at the records of the U.S. State Department and the United States Information Agency, which during the Cold War was essentially the the, the, they would term it um, the the organ for psychological warfare during the Cold War, and the you know Voice of America would come out of that, for example. Um, but what became very clear very quickly to me is I was reading these archival accounts and these memorandums, um, both you know at the level of speechwriters and advance crew and State Department officials, and even um, minutes of conversations with various presidents themselves, is that the U.S. government was attempting to reach multiple audiences audiences all at the same time through various means. So for example, if you look at Eisenhower's Goodwill Tours in 1959 and 1960, one of the motivating factors behind those tours was that Eisenhower was deeply concerned about his presidential legacy. He had just lost um, his, his margins in Congress in the 1958 congressional elections. And there was this real concern that he had lost the power of the president to direct foreign affairs. He and his press secretary, Steve Hagerty, have this back and forth discussion about their concern. And so Hagerty says to him, really to extend the powers of the presidency and to make it clear that you are leading foreign affairs and you're not being led by the Senate, you should go travel overseas. And so that's focused on a domestic audience, right? This image of the president and what they should be able to do at this moment in time. But as the planning for the Goodwill Tours begins, the United States Information Agency and the State Department get involved and pour money and hours and manpower and resources into making sure not only do we fly U.S. journalists down to South America, for example, for that particular Goodwill tour, but also making sure that reporters on the ground are there to capture images, um, to take newsreel footage. And there's this one remarkable memo um, that one of the, the planners for USIA sends to Steve Hagerty and essentially says, we are making sure that these people understand that they are presenting this image of the president to audiences around the world who cannot see him in person. And so there was this coordinated campaign, and this is just one example from many, um, but I think it really offers a, a clear one that officials were concerned both of saying to a domestic audience, this is the role the United States should take during the Cold War, and you should rally behind this image and this, this vision of the United States, and saying to international audiences, look, you should align yourself with the United States and not the Soviet Union, and here's this picture of robust leadership and what it offers to you. And and that question of robust leadership, the presentation of robust leadership is something that you talk about with regard to the 
body, the the physical sort of presentation of a man, because they they were all men, um, and and what that was also communicating, um, not just in rhetoric but in symbol and in image, um, as you say, you know, this is an image that's going to go out to the whole world from reporters in South America or French reporters or whomever is reporting on it, as well as journalists who are traveling along with the president. Uh, but we have a lot of imaginary space where we've seen presidents in film and television um, and, you know, possibly being represented by women or African-Americans before Barack Obama. Uh, but what is it about that physical presence of one of these gentlemen that's important to understand? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And here I'm thinking about uh, former guests on your podcast, thinking about the book Woman President um, by Kari Buckley Anderson and Christina Horton Sheeler, which has done really significant work in helping us think about representations of what they call presidentiality. Um, and I do draw on that that work in my book. Um, you are absolutely correct. We are talking about in my five case studies, five white men. Um, and I'd say a couple things. So first of all, when you look at the image of the president during the Cold War, the embodied presence of the president traveling overseas um, does portray this masculine and also paternal image. I think it's really important to note that it is not just that it's this masculine heterosexual image, but it is also this one of paternalism, because one of the things that I do show throughout the book is that depending on where the president went, and depending on how the president was presenting himself in these cases to particular audiences, there was this implied assumption that audiences who were seeing the president in the flesh should look to the United States as being the person that could protect them from communism. So I mentioned Eisenhower, if you're reading the archival record, um, themes of paternalism, particularly as you're thinking about Latin America, are rampant. Um, and concerns about Eisenhower going to to this space and this region, particularly as the U.S. administration is very concerned about Cuba. Um, it is very clear we need to present this strong paternal image of the United States as the only one that you can count on. And you should look to us because we are the one that knows best for you. And that is absolutely pre prevalent. Um, but what I'll also say in thinking about the body of the president is one thing I talk about in the book is that, and this goes to the title of the book, the world is our stage. And that title comes not it's, it's a reference to Shakespeare, but it also is a reference to this USIA report that I found that talks about the, the report is entitled the image of the United States that matters the most. And it's published in 1960, right around the same time that Eisenhower is engaging in these, these cold war uh, goodwill tours. And essentially this anonymous writer says, we need to be very concerned about the image that we are presenting on the world stage, because we need to have other nations who are uncommitted in this global struggle to see themselves as wanting to align with the United States. And so uh, the argument I make in the book is that as the presidential body was traveling the globe in these particular locations, they were essentially symbolically and physically marking out or establishing the contours of where U.S. influence would be um, and, and where various audiences could imagine the presence of the president and by extension, the presence of the United States in various spaces 
on this world stage. And so the president was not just representing this paternalistic, you know, hegemonic male dominated role, it was, but it was also by extension symbolizing the very um, central role the United States saw itself playing in the Cold War, that it should be the epicenter and the assumed leader of the free world. And that was something that the that the nation was very concerned about establishing. And the president was was speaking and acting as the head of that entity. And you talk about this particularly in the in the chapter on Truman um, and, you know, Truman following on after Roosevelt. He was, you know, not necessarily thought of well by Roosevelt. <laughs> um, and so he, you know, not necessarily an accidental president, but um, also not necessarily considered as skilled or professional. Um, And this is when the U.S. is entering the Cold War. This is really the sort of, this is the handoff. Um, And so how is it that the the gentleman from Independence um, sort of comes to inhabit this space and the power um, that Roosevelt didn't really think him capable of doing, in fact? No, no. In fact, I mean, it is quite shocking. Um, we forget how ill-experienced Truman was, quite frankly, in world affairs. I mean, I, um, you know, historians talk about that he had met privately with Roosevelt twice prior to Roosevelt's death and knew close to nothing about various, you know, post-war strategies. Um, one of the things that happens when uh, Truman is preparing to go to Potsdam is there's this great scramble because they didn't keep very great notes about these previous wartime conferences. It was all just kind of this institutional memory. And and all of a sudden this is gone. Um, And, you know, if you look at Truman's diaries of this period, he is very, uh, very unhappy that he has um, assumed this role. He writes a letter to one of his family members and, and says, you know, how, how I hate to be in this position, but here it is. And I can't really do anything about it. Um, And as he's preparing to go to Potsdam, What's striking um, in in the research that I found, and specifically did on the um, the journalistic coverage of Truman's travel to Potsdam. So this is the third kind of major um, Allied conference between what was known during sec- the Second World War as the Big Three, so Great Britain, the United States, and Russia. So we had previous wartime conferences at um, Tehran and Yalta between, in those cases, Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt. And in those moments, you may, your listeners may have seen um, these really famous pictures of the big three leaders gathered. And what's interesting is Roosevelt's always in the middle. And so um, when Truman goes to Potsdam, and as he's preparing to, to be there, and then during that Potsdam conference, it's clear that Truman and his advisors really do see this moment as an opportunity for Truman to exhibit world leadership on the global stage and to do it in a way that's unmistakable. Now, what's very interesting, and this goes back to your your question about presidential bodies and presence, is that um, all big three leaders, so at this point, it's Truman, it's Churchill, and it's Stalin. And then in the middle of the conference, Churchill will get replaced by Clement Attlee because of British elections. But but the big three leaders going in agree that there's not going to be any newspaper coverage of um, of the Potsdam conference in the sense that they're not going to let reporters into the compound, but they say photographers can be there. 
but we will not, you know, allow you to report on the words that are spoken or said. And so Truman adopts other rhetorical strategies, such as where he will be seated um, in these photos of the big three. And the one of the photographers um, on the staff of the army reports that when they're going to, to be photographed in these three chairs, Stalin attempts to sit in the middle and Truman essentially cuts him off and refuses to be displaced and not figuratively, not just figuratively or metaphorically, but literally. And he understood the symbolism of what his body meant in that chair. And again, that's to an international audience who's concerned about the post-war world, but it's also to a U.S. audience who is really very shocked and very concerned about their particular individual future and the future of the world because Roosevelt is gone. And so Truman understands the significance of where he will sit, where he will be placed, and how he will be seen. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And, and so I, I'd love to be able to take you just a little bit through each of the other presidents because they are doing different, as you say, they're doing different things in different places. But as you note, it becomes a pattern. Um, and that's what I found really fascinating in, in your research. And so you've talked a lot about Eisenhower's goodwill tours. Um, and of course, you know, now we know a little bit about how Eisenhower's health was a little bit dodgy also during his administration. Um, but what was it specifically that Eisenhower was thinking about besides trying to rein in his power again, even as he's preparing to leave office? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. So the, the Goodwill Tours really take place. Um, the, the, the seeds of them are, are kind of um, planted and cultivated, as I mentioned, after those 1958 congressional elections. Um, and they begin planning in earnest in 1959. So I mentioned, you know, this desire to, to really assert the powers of the presidency in foreign affairs. But the other thing that happens that is very important to this narrative is in September of 1959, Nikita Khrushchev undertakes a tour of the United States. It is a massive publicity um, event. Um, and in fact, it's quite successful in terms of everyone wants to talk about it. People line his route, even if he's in the middle of the United States um, or if he's in, you know, Disneyland. And um, Khrushchev also delivers televised speeches to the U.S. public calling for peaceful coexistence. And um, there's a CIA memorandum that I that declassified that I read at the Eisenhower Library that is that is published just after um, Khrushchev's trip, and it really displays a deep concern over whether or not the U.S. public and, by extension, the rest of the world will be taken with this message. And so, um, I never was able to find a direct archival link between Khrushchev's tours um, and Eisenhower's tours. The planning had kind of begun, but what I can tell you, it's that within two weeks after Khrushchev's tour the planning begins in earnest. And it's like, this is really going to happen. So I'm still searching for that archival document. And if anyone does archival research, you know how tantalizing the the thing that it's unfound can be. But um, 
So, so that is also a motivating factor. But then finally, it's important to note that Eisenhower's first goodwill tour, so he undertakes three ones in December of 1959, and that is um, to, to Europe, um, part of North Africa and Asia. Um, and the, the focus of that tour really is a relationship with India. Um, and, uh, you know, at this point, India is considered a neutral country, so hadn't sided with the Soviet Union or the United States. And Eisenhower writes in his memoirs that he's very concerned about bringing India um, towards the, the side of democracy, um, towards the United States. Um, and then it's in, in March, um, excuse me, February and March of 1960 that he's doing his tours in Latin America. Um, and then finally, it's in uh, May through June that he's doing his tour to Asia. And in all of those instances, the rationale behind these tours is where can the president go to see and be seen? And what do these specific stops and these particular countries demonstrate about U.S. commitment? And at times it's um, as crass as we really want to reward this country because they're on our side against standing against the Soviets. And in other cases, it is we're really concerned about this country because they seem to have communist tendencies. Now, this is never said publicly. Um, this is all behind the scenes, now declassified memorandums. Um, the final thing I'll say, though, about motivation, and this is maybe an argument for why historical and archival research matters as we think about the presidency, um, is that particularly as it relates to that South American tour in February and March of 1960, um, now declassified memos demonstrate that the primary reason Eisenhower went to Latin America was because of their deep concern over Cuba and Castro's rise to power. And as Eisenhower is on his tour, he never utters publicly a word about Cuba. Never. Um, he really almost refuses to get into it in the private memorandums of conversations with various heads of state. But at the exact same time, he has asked military aides and staff back in Washington to begin what planning for what will become the Bay of Pigs. And so there is this very clear understanding that Eisenhower is not going to speak about Cuba, but his presence in place next to Cuba, flying over Cuba, is going to symbolize we will not allow that to happen, even as militarily these plans are going into effect. And so that's another reason that I think we can think about the presence of the president and a traveling body as rhetorical, and that it's communicating and symbolizing something, even though Eisenhower never utters it. We do have the archival evidence to, to back up that this was very much a concern of his. And, and so then we have a, a, a speech that people are probably more familiar with, with regard to Kennedy in West Berlin. Um, and again, we have a divided Berlin at this point. And, um, and Kennedy, we don't know it, obviously, but the, his, his administration is going to end quite soon after the speech. Um, and, and he was, as presidents go, he's often considered somebody who sort of was keyed into the symbolic nature of the office and, and to some degree, his rhetoric in that office. Can you talk a little bit about his trip to Germany? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we just celebrated the, the 70th anniversary um, of his famous Ich bin ein Berliner speech um, in West Berlin. So it's June 26, 1963. Um, one of the things that I talk about in the book is 
saying that, yes, although this speech is very well known and has been written about by various historians and political scientists and rhetoricians, one of the things that hadn't been considered that I was really interested in is how places themselves come to have rhetorical histories. And so I talk about the symbolic significance of West Berlin, not just because the Berlin Wall had recently gone up, um, just two years earlier, but also thinking about what um, Berlin as a site, you know, the previous um, capital of Nazi Germany, then it's partitioned by the four powers. We think about the Berlin Airlift in 1948 and 1959, and how that really also contributes to this idea of the United States will stand on the side of of democracies or people seeking democracy and what that means in the public consciousness. Um, and then how, you know, West Berlin becomes really this flashpoint. Some historians will argue that if there's um, really any place that the Soviet Union and the United States directly come into military conflict or almost do, um, it is in West Berlin. And then that's, um, you know, one of the, the, the flashpoints essentially. Um, but I think it's important for, for listeners to know that Kennedy almost doesn't go to Berlin is actually uh, a subject of much debate. And in fact, again, looking at the archival record, he finally decides to go because Nikita Khrushchev has been making multiple trips to East Berlin. And so we can think about presidential presence, not just as what is the president close to um, in terms of Eisenhower, and not just where the president sits in terms of Truman or what they're, you know, occupying or, or replacing, but also what are the competing narratives and the competing bodies. And so it's really interesting to think about Berlin, not just as a site that's that's divided by this ugly gash, um, as, as Kennedy will call it, the Berlin Wall, but also these competing bodies and narratives that both Khrushchev and Kennedy represent. And so when Kennedy decides to go to Berlin, um, he he really sees it as this symbolic act. And so there's multiple memos in the archives talking about why Berlin is going to be this site and this space that will represent for the West German people, for even people living on the other side of the wall, for East Germans, um, the U.S. public, and the broader international audience, that Kennedy being in that place is going to symbolize U.S. commitment during the Cold War. And and so we have two more presidents, both of them Republicans. Um, you you leave out um, a couple of shorter administrations like Ford and Carter, um, but you have obviously the very famous um, Nixon in China, the quote opening of China, um, and you know we are now in the midst of some sort of cold war maybe with China these days, even though we buy lots of stuff from them. Um, so, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion of, you know, the symbolic nature of Nixon being super anti-communist, being able to go to China and what he was talking about. Um, but how does, how does the Nixon example fit into your broader theory? <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it It is a diplomatic triumph. And I think, generally speaking, historians and political scientists, regardless of what you think about Nixon as a president, would agree on that point. Um, the reason I picked this case study, even though it is so well known and has been written about in a number of ways, is because I wanted 
to essentially test the theory, to say, does it hold up in this really kind of obvious moment of presidential travel abroad? And um, specifically, I wanted to ask the question of, is there a relationship? You mentioned Reagan as well. And so in these particular instances, both Nixon and Reagan are traveling to these particular locations. So Nixon in 72, Reagan in 84, going into re-election campaigns. And so what I wanted to see was, does the archival evidence hold up that it's not just about a global audience and it's not even just com- convincing a domestic audience of a particular place in the world, but can these tours be seen and weaponized in a particular way to um, garner public support and electoral support in these re-election bids? Um, and so in the case of Nixon, what I found um was in fact, as I argue in the book, that although we've talked about this trip as this foreign policy triumph and it really changes relations, all of those things are true. But what is, again, really fascinating in looking at the archive is that Nixon and his advisors planned this visit first and foremost as part of his political campaign. Now, when I say that, most people would probably say, well, of course he did. Um, But I... I want to stress here how clear it is in the archive from concerns over which journalists would be allowed to cover the trip. For a while, the New York Times was not included on the list, and that had to be walked back, walked back because Nixon was very concerned about their coverage, um, to where cameramen would be stationed and how his visit would be televised to audiences around the world. So as some listeners may remember that this was, you know, this cable news event that continued over seven or eight days. And there's this fascinating memo that that one of this, the planners um, sends to Nixon and, and his chief of staff and essentially says, you know, we want to be able to capitalize on this particular moment so that families this is a paraphrase, but almost a direct quote, you know, families will come home at the end of the day and say, you know, daddy, you're home from work. Let's sit down and let's watch the president in China because it becomes this media spectacle that will allow the nation to travel along with Nixon. And this is where the technological change really does allow this particular medium. Um, But at the end of the day, over and over again, the questions Nixon's asking are not about our international relations with China. He's concerned about them, yes, but it is all about how he will appear and what that will look like to the electorate. The the Nixon campaign in 72 remains just a, a flummoxing... <laughs> I mean, we get Watergate because he was concerned about his reelection. He goes to China because he's concerned about his reelection. It's and yet he was going to be reelected. I okay. Anyhow, <laughs> back to Reagan. Um, and so you do you do sort of jump over obviously Ford and Carter. Um, were there fewer options or examples that worked in either of their cases? That's a great question. So um, part of it comes with the the necessary limitations of a, of a book. Um, you know, I think um, there's obviously in thinking about Carter, you know, thinking about his human rights record, um, and but but we also think about Iran, right? In in relationship to Carter, and so I knew if I were going if I was going to do Carter justice, it would probably take more than just a case study or a chapter. Um, and also with Ford thinking about really, um, you know, his 
is cleaning up after Watergate. Um, and because I wanted to keep the narrative kind of tight in thinking about um, various moments and various decades of Cold War foreign policy, it makes made sense to go to Reagan. And so you you go to Reagan in the speech um, in Normandy, which is at a cemetery um, that is from World War Two. Right. Um, And that, again, you know, Reagan had quite a few speeches that were famous. um, And this was one that was famous, but perhaps not as famous as some of the other ones. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So the the speech at Point of Hawk. So in 1984, Reagan delivers two speeches. So he delivers one at um, Omaha Beach. And that is the, the cemetery that's, you know, it's linked to. Um, the the American Cemetery in Normandy, um, but the speech that I particularly look at in the book is his his address at Point de Hoc, which if um, you've been to Normandy, is kind of this land that juts out into the English Channel, and it's the site where 225 U.S. Army Rangers um, were landed at the bottom of these cliffs, and their their mission was to take out um, what was believed to be the enemy guns that were perched on top of these cliffs. That intelligence believed that if we don't get rid of these these guns, they can take out the entire invasion. Um, those guns were actually moved, and so these rangers were actually just fighting um, fighting you know Nazi soldiers in bunkers um, on the top of these cliffs. But I chose this particular speech because one of the things that's incredibly compelling and moving about Reagan's address at Point de Hawk is how Reagan repeatedly points his audience to the place of address, so Point de Hawk, um, the cliffs, but then also members of his audience. Um, so he invites 62 of the surviving U.S. Army Rangers who actually enacted what he's going to describe in this speech um, to be part of the audience. and. I think it's important to remember that one of the things that presidential rhetoric abroad and specifically in particular places does is it helps create this shared sense of identity and narrative. And so for Reagan in 1984, you know, he's really responding to and the themes of his campaign are around what does it mean to have this idea of American renewal? What is the United States role in the world? And Reagan is seeking to address real fears about U.S. involvement abroad based upon Vietnam, um, Iran, um, and he is attempting to provide a picture of what, quote unquote, good U.S. leadership abroad might look like. And so he goes back to retell this story of this allied invasion, which, you know, many can consider the, the last good war, that the moral principles were very clear. And he then links um, this narrative and the people that are assembled in his audience as justification for his Cold War foreign policy. And so it really is, um, you know, in rhetorical terms, or as Aristotle would think about it and top of, talk about it, a, a real exemplar of epideictic speech or ceremonial address. Um, And I would argue it's one of, if not Reagan's greatest speeches, because of how it accomplishes that narrative um, in inviting an audience in 84 to link themselves back to 1944 and to take the same um, same motivation to act differently at this Cold War moment. And I wanted to ask you, since you do, you, you are looking specifically at this Cold War period um, and, and you have, as you noted, a, a pretty tight narrative. You've got the thesis. Um, you've 
I'm persuaded. Um, and I'm also fascinated by the, you know, what you found in the archives and the memos behind the scenes were really interesting to sort of see what the conversation was, not just, you know, in the speech that's given, but, you know, what everybody was also thinking in this period of the Cold War. Um, what happens next? What happens after the Cold War? Does your theory hold up? It does. It does. And in fact, um, I think, you know, probably the most recent example, I mean, you mentioned in the intro, thinking about Biden and Trump, um, specifically, you know, traveling to Michigan to think about um, the UAW strike. Um, but think back to earlier this year, Biden's decision to make that secret trip to Ukraine. Um, to meet with President Zelensky. And um, I don't know about you, but when I woke up, photos were everywhere on the news, right? And so it was very clearly um, this packaged um, media event. I end at the Cold War um, with Reagan because the goal of the book is to make the argument that as presidents sought to travel abroad and, and, and pull these places and these scenes really into their um, performance on the world stage, they were crafting a particular narrative of the world and the nation during the Cold War. Um, but as I talk about in the conclusion of the book, this practice only continues and, and accelerates. Um, so you see, for example, um, George W. Bush um, traveling to, to meet with various U.S. troops who were stationed abroad um, after 9-11 and after the U.S. invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan and saying to you, you know, you are... Um, advancing the mission of freedom, right? And so you hear those Cold War themes and as justification for what Bush um, decides to do after 9-11. But you also see it in Barack Obama, one of the most, um, one of his first international addresses um, after he comes into office is to travel to Cairo. And he essentially calls for this new beginning in U.S., Middle East, foreign policy and relationships. Um, and he is quite clear about why he has picked Cairo in particular to speak and what that symbolizes. Um, you see it in Donald Trump and his decision to, to step across the border in North Korea and being pretty explicit about the fact that he wants to be the first U.S. president to do so and what that symbolizes. And so I think, you know, if there is a cautionary tale, perhaps, is that there is a quality of media spectacle to these iterations, right, that can very quickly become this media event that extends beyond perhaps the symbolic importance of these visits, where you think about Kennedy, for example, in West Berlin. And what does it mean? And I think this is a broader conversation we can be concerned about beyond the book of what does it mean when presidential rhetoric is less about arguments or policies that are being articulated and more about a media spectacle? And then what does that say about the institution of the presidency? And I assume that's your next book. <laughs> well, it definitely um, it it is a it is a concern that I am thinking about. I'll be teaching a class on the rhetoric of the the twenty twenty four presidential election uh, next year. It's not my next book, but it's something I'm concerned about um, in thinking about the institution and its ability to sustain. So, what are you writing now or researching? So, you know. Against better advice or maybe good advice, um, I am turning my attention to the 18th and 19th centuries. So I have um, always been fascinated by how the space of Washington, D.C. 
the the spatial design, the planning, the topographical grid, um, the ecological elements of the city, um, all coalesce to create what we now know as Washington, D.C. And so I'm writing a rhetorical history of how that process came to be and paying particular attention to thinking about questions of race and inequity and how that really um, undergirds the whole story of where our capital is and what it looks like. I'm fascinated because I I understand that there's a lot of discussion about like how that that city exudes power in a certain sort of symbolic way. And also because all the buildings are short and squat um, and marble. (laughs) Um, And so I look forward to talking to you about it when you finish it. I would love to have you join me again. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, So I would like to thank you, Allison Prash, who is the author of The World is Our Stage from Shakespeare, um, The Global Rhetorical Presidency and the Cold War um, from the University of Chicago Press. Do you have a brick and mortar store with perhaps an online presence to which you would like to give a shout out? I do. So my favorite local bookstore here in Madison, Wisconsin is Mystery to Me on Monroe Street. Um, I believe their website is mysterytome.com and they, they're fantastic. All right. Thank you so much for joining me today, Allison. It's been a great pleasure to read and discuss your book. Thanks, Lily. I really appreciate the invitation.